If you're looking for a community to accompany you in your leadership journey, you should join our Savvy Supervisors Facebook group. Insights and videos, supports, great group discussions, and weekly themes to help you hone your leadership skills all for free. You can find it at SavvySupervisors.com. That will take you directly to the Facebook page. And if you're interested in finding out more about our supervisory leadership course, which is our signature course and has been used with over 100 companies with amazing results, you can check that out at supervisoryleadership.co. That's supervisoryleadership.co. His mission is to create peace by facilitating understanding, relating, and connecting. I'm really excited to present my guest today, who is Christian Hofferlicher. He is a cultural consultant, coach, trainer, and mentor for multinational organizations, or rather, for people who work globally. Based in Atlanta, he is German by passport, American by choice, Bavarian at heart, and people call him the culture guy. At the core of his purpose is culture. His passion is to help people discover commonality when they feel overwhelmed by difference. And as he helps people figure out this thing called culture, they work at their peak and in peace with others. Throughout his career, Christian has had the privilege of working with people from all over the world. With his company, The Culture Mastery, Christian and his team serve multinational organizations and help them to achieve their goals in global markets. TCM does this via tailored coaching and training programs for expats, as well as for multicultural teams. I discovered Christian when I first listened to his podcast and was very taken by his interview style and the guests that he interviewed. And I thought I simply must ask him to be on the Cultural Leadership Connections podcast too, because he has so much to offer and his insights into his own cultural process will be very useful for people, for the audience to hear about. So welcome, Christian, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Marie. Thanks for allowing me to be on this program. Podcasting is awesome, as you know, and thanks for plugging my program in there as well. Um, I think it's a great way to share our expertise. Yeah, I really uh, love your program. And in fact, we put it in all the show notes to make sure that people have the links and they can connect with you and they can, uh, they can connect with your podcast and all the other wonderful things that you do. And they'll find the episode that we two did together. Yay. That's true. Yeah, it's like a, it's a mutual admiration fan club. <laughs> yes. So I always like to start by asking my guests to tell the audience a little bit more about who they are. I'm a Generation X German and a Generation X West German because when I was born, there were two Germanys and I hail from the Western part. And I was 19 years old when the wall came down that separated the two Germanys. And by that time, I had already learned that my way isn't the only way to be happy in life. I had learned that my upbringing, the way I think well, I thought that life has to be was not universal in the world. I was 17 years old when my parents were wise enough to let me go on a international student exchange program. And I lived with a host family in northern Midwest of the United States and Minnesota, close to the Canadian border in the year of 1988. And that took away my blinders, as I call it, uh, the blinders that I was wearing as a monocultural person going through life and thinking there's only one universal truth and only one way of normal. And at the age of 17, I quickly came to realize there's other ways to do things and they also have their validity, even though I may not be comfortable with them right now, or even if they 
appeared to be a little strange to me in the beginning, they still get results. And so they must work. And reconciling that awareness for me was, was at that age helpful because I was a cocky bastard. I was this 17-year-old young male thinking that I have figured this thing life out for myself and adults won't teach me anything anymore. And that put me back in my place. Yeah. So that I think might describe a little bit who I am. It's interesting how sometimes you can look at the results that people are getting. You can go, how does that even happen? I can't even imagine that they would get those results. And it really makes you think, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember vividly uh, in, in Europe, if you have a, a vehicle that is pulling a trailer, there are certain regulations and certain design specifications, what a trailer hitch has to look like and, and semi trucks look a certain way. And then I remember this was in the winter in Minnesota in, in what February or March of 1988. And I see this big pickup truck and it was pulling a livestock trailer and the hitch was not on on the trailer hitch at the end of the vehicle, but it was sitting on the bed of the truck. And I was like, this cannot be safe. My All my German sense of security and risk avoidance boiled up inside of me as a 17-year-old. I thought, what if they have a collision? That What if he has to break hard? That trailer will just bulldoze right through the driver cabin. And all these scenarios went on in my head that this is not real. This is not good. This is not normal. This is not how things should be. And I had this, this gut reaction to this. And I kept seeing vehicles like this on the road. I thought, okay, there's no accidents and they they deliver the animals to where they need to go and the tool serves its purpose maybe there is a way this could work and maybe my perception of what is right and wrong maybe i need to revisit that so it was little little things everyday experiences that gradually made me aware of my cocky self-confidence that i was 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 so willingly sharing with the world wasn't serving me well because i had a limited worldview and and becoming aware of my own limitations was as I said, a healing life experience. Mm -hmm. There's a, an intercultural writer named uh, Lionel LaRoche, who's originally from France and who is a Canadian now. And he does a lot of public speaking. And one of the stories that he tells, which I think is really uh, interesting, similar to yours, is that he said that he first really understood how he needed to open his mind to different ways to do things around the whole issue of when you eat dinner. Because in France, you eat dinner anytime between, you know, eight and 10 at night. Mm -hmm. And he thought that is just the way you do things. And then he, he was in several communities where dinner was at completely different times. And then he was in an Inuit community where they didn't have dinner. They just made dinner at the top, at front of the day. And anybody who was hungry ate whenever they were hungry. There was no dinner. And that's when he realized that his whole concept of dinner was very much culturally bound. Hmm. Right. Similar to what you said about the hitches on the truck, right? Or, or the, the use of silverware. Ask your former French friend how he feels about the North American way of using silverware. Most Central Europeans are a little at odds with that when they first experienced that in the United States. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so let's go to my next question, which is, can you share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you believe really formed you into that person that you are today? You've talked about your adolescence. And mm -hmm. so you have something from your childhood or maybe something else from your adolescence that you think was very formational for you. Well, I, I would argue there were a few, few of those things. I'm a small town boy. So I grew up in a small town in Bavaria, which is a southeastern state in Germany, close to the mountains. So if you looked up my childhood room window, you would see the, the mountain ridge of the Alps. And we lived close to all those King Ludwig castles that tourists to Germany want to see. So I, I grew up in that part of the country. And I'm not the child of academically trained 
trained parents. And my, my family is, is working class. My family comes from, from vocational professions. My, my father was a butcher. My mother was a, a dental hygienist at the local dental office. And then they together they took over a, a local butcher shop in the small town. So, so that's, that's the way I grew up with, with small town, conservative, Catholic-based values. Um, yet I was, we were not the church-going family. So I think Americans call it Catholic, uh, cafeteria Catholic. So you only take what you want and leave what you don't want behind. Yet when I meet North American Catholics, my only Catholic story that I can tell is when I was confirmed. Those of you who are Catholic, you know that there is a confirmation process when you're about 11 or 12 years old. And it's usually the ceremony is conducted by the, the local bishop or archbishop of the diocese. And when it was time for my confirmation, the archbishop who was over the ceremony later became the Pope. So I can say that Pope Benedict was the bishop back then that confirmed me. It has no meaning to me whatsoever because I'm not deep in my faith, but that's a good story to connect with fellow Catholics. But that's the environment that I was raised in, this conservative, yet um, fiscally and, and, and economically conservative, but fairly liberal when it comes to social questions. So I was born in 1970, and my mom was five months pregnant with me when she and my dad went to the altar. So she was visibly pregnant in a time when having extramarital intercourse was not necessarily socially accepted. So my parents were a little bit renegades in that regard as well. So it was the the wild uh, 70s, right? The, the era of sexual liberation, the pill came out, women got the right of their body to a certain extent. And all of this has shaped my upbringing. It was this mixture between Catholicism and conservatism mixed with this new let's be a little more modern and open-worldly about it. And yet I grew up in a country that was divided. So I grew up with knowing that my grandparents' generation committed arguably the biggest crime in humanity. And as a result, we have two Germany. And I think one of the, one of the big moments in my, in my adolescence was seeing the division of Germany end and the way it did end that a country, a culture that for 2,000 years of his existence had trouble making friends with their neighbors and had, had brought ag aggression over the continent and the world, suddenly decides to take its fate into its own hand without violence. So there was the first revolution in Germany that didn't result in a war. And it was a peaceful change. And that is something that shaped my generation. That's really interesting. Because in your bio, you're talking so much about how peace is important to you and how you want to promote peace. And I think that part of that must come from this idea of Germany becoming united with difficulty. It wasn't like it was easy or anything and still uh, lots of things that are not easy. But unification through a peaceful process and how important that is for humanity to progress. We can't keep acting like we've never grown up. We have to grow up. <laughs> and grown up solve problems without killing each other. That's so. Yeah, that's that's great. And that's that's a lesson that we're we are continuing to learn. It's not like Germany is healed from its demons, or the world is healed from from making those stupid decisions that result in killing each other. But my argument, or the the, the base reason why I do the work that I do, is my culture is not known for being culturally savvy. Germans have proven to the world over centuries that they don't get along really well with their neighbors or with other cultures. And in the 1930s and 40s, it led to a mass genocide. And if my work can contribute to cultural understanding, then my job is done. Then I, I did my piece to, I can't correct what was done, but I can make sure that it doesn't happen again. That, yeah. That's why I do what I do. 
That kind of brings up that question, which I'm sure you get asked regularly, is that whole question of German guilt across generations. My father also immigrated from Germany, and he has a different story than, than yours, but this whole idea of German guilt is something that I was conscious of as I was growing up. I discovered uh, about three years ago a book called Migrations and Cultures, where they talk about different cultures moving to different countries and what happens, what are the immigration similarities that happen and what are the dissimilarities. And then they feature seven cultures in detail of, for as long as we have history. And the very first one they feature is German culture. And mm. I was blown away by something that I didn't know. And I thought this might be interesting for you too. And what it is, is that whenever Germans immigrate, they do two things. They establish a newspaper and they make friends with whoever the underdogs are, but alienate themselves from the dominant society. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing about cowboys and Indians being such a big deal for Germans is because of making friends with the people that you see as being disadvantaged. The very first uh, a slavery abolition meeting that was ever held in the United States was held in Germantown yes, because yes. the Germans were the only ones who wanted to encourage the abolition of slavery. So the abolition of slavery, uh, getting to know the people who are the First Nations people and supporting them, that's been part of German culture, right? While they're still doing the opposite with other people. It's a very interesting dichotomy, don't you think? I, I would agree. And I would add to that, that this is immigrant behavior. These yes. are people that voluntarily or involuntarily left Germany and set their behaviors um, to a world that they would like to have for themselves. So I'm not surprised by, by, by that common feature. Um, and it is, it is one of the training uh, elements that we do when we work with German North American teams is I, I ask a question if they know who is the uh, most popular or most successful German author of all times. And I give them a list to choose from. And there's Hermann Hesse and Thomas Mann and, all, and Goethe and Schiller and all the German literary greats. And then there's one name that nobody knows. It's Karl. May. And he is the correct answer. Karl May is a gentleman who wrote adventure novels. Um, and there were usually two CJs. One was in the Arab world and the other one was in North America, Cowboys and Indians. And contrary to the Hollywood depiction of how the West was won, um, in Karl May novels, there is the delay, the, the line between good people and villains is not between the white settlers and the, the violent natives. The, the line between good and evil is it goes across the ethnic rift. So there is good and bad white people and there's good and bad native people. And his heroes and his stories is one white settler and one native chief and they become best friends and they solve the problem. So this is, for generations of Germans, including myself, this is how we envision the quote-unquote Wild West, how it was. It is completely different from how Hollywood depicts it. So Germans' view of the American pioneer phase does not line up with the way that Americans view their own history. It's a great great uh, cultural difference to experience and to to debrief for for clients and none of those have to do with the real experience of the first nations and the actual colonizers most likely not mostly no. they're all imaginary most likely not and if you do want a more accurate uh recollection of what that may have looked like i have there's a book i would recommend it's called 1491 by a gentleman called Charles Mann, M-A-N-N, Charles Mann, 1941. He's a historian, archaeologist, and he was able to, to collect what we now have of, of historic archaeological evidence of what the Americas looked like before the European mass immigration. And it is a, a picture that defies what most of us learn in school. 
Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I'm going to have to put that into the show notes as well. Yeah, I'd I, I recommend that to anyone that wants it or doesn't want it. That's my mission. Read this, correct your image of the United States and Canada. It's good. It's good. So um, I'm, I think that those two childhood inter- uh, stories that you told were very, very useful. And I'm wondering, from those groups that you were born into, you mentioned a couple, but I'm sure there are more. From those groups that you were born into, which would you say has most influenced your sense of culture and self as a leader? That's a tough question. Well, culturally speaking, I identify most with Bavaria, which is the culture of my home state. Um, it, if you're familiar with the German language or if you're familiar with any European language, there there is typically a, a what's called the high language, the common denominator language that the entire country agrees upon. And then there are the local regional dialects. And, and my dialect in German is very pronounced and it's closer to the one that is spoken in our neighboring country of Austria. So I, I tell people from outside of Europe, uh, I am culturally much closer to people from Austria who have a different passport than I am to people from Berlin or Hamburg or other parts of Northern Germany, even though we share the same nationality. So I think my, my cultural identity is Bavarian, Southern Bavarian, Alpine. Uh, that's, that's how I grew up. And yet I'm uh, while I wouldn't describe myself as a third culture person, I have lived outside of my native culture for so long that most people in my family and my old friends back in Germany, they will tell you that I have become very Americanized. And most of my American friends will tell you, well, he's the German guy. Mm-hmm. So I, I know I'm stuck somewhere in between or have one foot on each continent. And I now do that confidently. I, I like being that person because I know I can switch my behavioral codes according to the situation that I'm dealing with. So in terms of how I lead, I think I've become much more agile in adjusting my style to whatever situation I'm dealing with. What would you say would be your German influence leadership characteristics? I'm very direct in the way I communicate. Um, Bluntness to up up to a point of where North Americans feel uh, attacked. That is something that I I struggle sometimes to rein in. So the Dutch, the Germans, the Russians, the Israelis, those are probably the four cultures that are very similar in that regard. We are very straight shooters, very straightforward, direct, blunt to a fault. And also I am not shy to um, argue my point in a confrontational way because for, for Germans, finding truth with each other could include being confrontational about it and and not sugarcoating my opinion. And that is something that works within my native culture. It does not always work when I deal with people from the US or from Brazil or Mexico or or China. So uh, I'm cognizant of that and I'm, 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 I have to manage that. But those, those probably are two things that, uh, that show up, that, that showcase my Germanness. And what would you say your experience of living in the United States has contributed to your sense of who you are as a leader? Well, first of all, I've become aware that I, I can adjust my behavior, that I do not always have to default back to my, my factory settings, right? So Your factory settings. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I've, I've expanded my toolbox, my behavioral toolbox, and I've learned to use those tools. So that, that's what the U.S. experience has taught me. But that's nothing. 
that is not to to the benefit of the states as a culture. That could have happened in Brazil, in Japan, or in in Zimbabwe. So, uh, just being outside of my natural culture has taught me that. What I took over from U.S. culture is a higher degree of comfort with uncertainty. Germans tend to be rather risk averse or risk skeptical. And uh, while I don't want this to be a commercial, but, but the company Nike has a slogan, has had a slogan for 30 years that showcases U.S. culture very well. It's a three-word slogan, just do it. And it is this, yeah, you can overthink it all you want, but execute and learn from what works and learn from what doesn't work, but keep executing. And that is not something I learned as a kid. I, I learned to analyze and eliminate risk before implementing an idea. So going back to cowboys and Indians, uh, the shooting from the hip isn't something that Germans are very comfortable with. Besides, the Germans are now rather skeptical of the use of firearms. And living in the U.S. has, has, has made me more comfortable with just doing and Hey, if it doesn't work, I didn't fail. I learned what didn't work, and I will, of course, correct. Yeah, very interesting. Canada's kind of in the middle, but closer to Germany in terms of risk avoidance. But then again, uh, things change depending on what the political climate is, too. I used to be uh, negotiating with U.S. Uh, companies for contracts, and it was pretty quick when they would come to a decision. And the Canadian companies would say, oh, we need 15 pilot projects before we actually make a full-blown contract. Uh, but now... I'm finding the U.S. companies are much more risk avoidant than they used to be. Well, there's some volatility in, in our system here in the U.S. right now and it, uh, with uncertain outcome. And a lot of people are happy about what, what the direction the country is going. A lot of people aren't. There is, um, yeah, uh, there is uncertainty or there is volatility there. So that may or may not influence our decision making. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see these things change. Yeah. So then the other thing is what about your temperament and your personality. So temperament is what you're born with, like you were saying, your factory settings. Mm -hmm. And everybody has some, and anybody who's a parent knows that kids are born with their own factory settings. Uh, and so you don't, typically you don't change that. And if you try to, it, it's really going against your grain. And then there's personality, which is the result of your experience, your education, and how you deal with obstacles when they come up, right? That's how you develop the personality. So the personality is really more malleable in that sense, the temperament less malleable. So what would you say your your temperamental settings are that you were born with? The only things that I can think of, I'm, I'm, maybe my degree of self-awareness isn't as, as high as I thought it was, um, but the, the things I can think of are, are mostly those that I'm not happy with. It's that I sometimes have a very short fuse, so I, my, my tolerance levels for, uh, for stupidity are, are very limited. So if I experience behavior that is not leading to a result or a positive outcome, then when I experience people being fidgety about things, and I, I get very impatient quickly. On the flip side, I think I, I tend to be a person who seeks out harmony. So I'm while I'm German and I'm, I'm ready to be confrontational in argument, in a social setting, I would like there to be harmony so people can work together well. I'm the peacemaker. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to, to rock the boat a little bit, yet I want to be the one bringing about peace and, and, and leading the group, whether it's family or a work team, into the safe water so we can sail smoothly and swiftly to our, as our goal. Cool. So, yeah, you know, what I found from interviewing people is anybody who has a business almost always says that they're impatient and they have a short fuse. It must have something to do with being entrepreneurial. You're just dissatisfied. You want things to be better, faster, more efficient. <laughs> 
That is probably one strong characteristic of people who work for themselves. I've been an employee. I've, I've been an employee in my parents' business when I was a teenager. My dad and mom, they made sure that I knew what labor looks and feels like. And I didn't get a lot of allowance as a kid. So that's probably going back to one of your earlier questions. My parents made me work for it. And they taught me the value of time for money or, or performance for money. So I always had more, uh, not more money than all of my friends, but I was always, there was always money in, in my in my wallet, but not because my parents or my family gave it to me because I earned it. So I, I the, the, the sense of entitlement is nothing that I, I can tolerate for long. So if, if you want it, work for it. And if you want it hard enough, you will work for it. And if you won't work for it, that means you don't want it hard enough. And I have very little tolerance. Or I have very little respect for people who, who are complainers and moaners and whiners and don't do anything about it. Uh, yeah, that, that probably is, is a characteristic that led me to prefer the entrepreneurship way of making a living rather than working for somebody else. Right. And so what about personality? What would you say you've developed as far as characteristics? I'm I'm very fond of a personality assessment profile called Bank Code B A N K. It has nothing to do with a financial institution, but it's the B A N K represents the four prototypes of personality. And yes, there are many personality profiles out there, and they usually go back to four personality prototypes. I think it goes all the way back to Aristotle and Platon, and, and it's all it, it, any none of us had an original thought ever since then. It's all been plagiarism since the ancient Greeks anyway. But um, so BANK stands for Blueprint Action Nurturing and Knowledge. So those are the four prototypes. And I would say that I am a very dominant knowledge personality type and a knowledge personality values things like intelligence, logic, technological advancement, research development, competence, accuracy, big picture view. So that that, that is something that is, is most valuable to me. That's how you convince me or persuade me. We all are somewhat of the four codes. So none of us are, when we look at personality profiles, we're not one code in an isolated manner, um, but we're all a mixture of, of the four prototypes. But the one that I am least is is the blueprint type. Those are the people that want to stick to their budgets and they plan excessively and they value predictability and rules and, and stability and structure and processes important to them. That is something that I don't have much in my life. And you could easily argue what type of German are you? Isn't that exactly what Germans are known for? Yeah, maybe, but it's that that shows you that there's culture and then there's personality. Um, and just because I'm German doesn't mean that I have to fulfill all those stereotypes that people may have about Germans. Yeah, and probably the majority of the Germans that I know, because you said before, immigrant culture is different. People who immigrate are willing to take risks. They're willing to break the rules. And, you know, if they become successful in that in the, their new country, they typically did it because they had to rethink things and do things differently and, and lose their sense of structure and security that they had before, uh, if they had it before. So, yeah, I would say that also fits that portrait. So let's go to um, a time when you already answered this, but you maybe have another example, which is a time when you became aware that your cultural understandings were specific to your culture and not normal, that everybody didn't do things that way. You talked about the hitches on the trucks, but can you think of another time? When I was a foreign exchange student, there were three questions that I was typically asked by fellow students or people in Minnesota. One was, Christian, what's your drinking age over there? Oh, 16. Wow, cool. Um, is it true that you can go as fast as you want on the Autobahn? Oh, really? Well, cool. 
And the third question they asked is, do you think the two Germanys will ever become one again? And I was like, no, it's 1988. Why would, I mean, nobody saw that coming, right? So the, those, those were the things when I started to think about that, that there, there might be differences. But where, is there one incident? There are so many, it's really hard to decide. I think the one that taught me the U.S. way of laissez-faire or the, the tolerance is an incident that I will never forget in my life. Even though I told you earlier, I'm not a man of faith. I'm spiritual, yes, but I'm not a church-going individual. But my host family was an interesting mix. My host family in Minnesota, the, the mother was Lutheran and the husband was Catholic. And she had, this was her, her second marriage. And he, the Catholic man, married a divorcee, a Lutheran divorcee who brought two children into the marriage. He was almost disowned by his Catholic family because in conservative Catholic circles, you don't do that. You don't marry a divorcee, yet they did. And I remember we went to family down in Nebraska somewhere in, in I don't know, in rural Nebraska to attend a family vacation holiday. It was Easter or something like that. And we went to their church service. And mind you, I had attended church with my host family, a Lutheran service every Sunday. And it was okay for me because it was solemn. It had this gravitas of seriousness in practicing faith. So even though I didn't want to go every Sunday, I did. And it was, it was okay for me to do that. It was not a big hardship. Now we go to this family in Nebraska to attend their church service. And it was, for me, the best comparison I could give you is like the scene, the church scene in the Blues Brothers where James Brown, James Brown plays the minister in front of a very black church, very lively singing, dancing in the aisles, people speaking in tongues. And actually there were two people in front of the, the room. There was the pulpit and then there was the altar and the two people were back and forth and people were shouting. And I was in the back row thinking to myself, what the hell is going on here? This, how, how is this church? What are they doing? And this is, this is not normal, right? So I, I was flabbergasted beyond belief. It wasn't seven, dignified for you. you were not like, at all. It was not dignified at all. And it was nothing that I had ever seen before. So the, the, the service ends and Tony, my host father, and I sit in the car waiting for the rest of the group to leave the building. And I thought, okay, this is my moment. From one Catholic to another, I will ask him. And I said, Tony, what type of movie did we just watch? What the hell was this? And he looks at me in bewilderment and said, what do you mean? Well, this wasn't church. This was not. This is not how you worship God. I, well, what the hell was this? I was this condescending 17-year-old prick who questioned what I had just experienced. And what he told me was the blueprint for me to understand what U.S. culture is. He said, Christian, and this was the only time he got serious with me in that entire year that I stayed with that family. He said, Christian, and I, I don't want to use this verbatim words because they were not clean. I said, these are the MFing United States of America. This is a country where everybody wants and has the ability to believe and worship their Lord the way they want to. If this is not your cup of tea, if you don't like this, then shut your mouth and let it go. It may not be my way. It may not be your way, but it's these people's way. And we need to respect that. And I felt myself blushing and turning red in the face and, and, and goosebumps all over my body. I get it now, remembering that scene, that this simple farmer from North Western Minnesota put me in my place and taught me about tolerance and inclusion. And I will never forget that. Wow. That's a great story. Very powerful. Have you seen the movie, The African Doctor? It's on my Netflix watch list. I haven't watched it yet. 
Oh, it is so good. There's a scene in there that you're just going to identify with so much. Oh, I will watch it tonight. Really similar to what you just discovered. So I'm not going to do the spoiler alert, but I'd love to see what, I'd love to know what you think about after you watch it. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, The only thing that is interesting to know in advance is that it is a true story. So you wouldn't think so because when you watch it, you think this cannot be true and it is completely true. So it's, but it's a great story. You're going to really love it. Lovely. Okay, we're almost at the end of the interview, which I'm just so thrilled to have had a chance to ask you these questions. Your answers have been so insightful and self-aware and thoughtful. I really appreciate that. A lot of times when you're interviewing people about culture, it's a new experience for them because they haven't thought about it a lot. So it's really nice to, to hear those responses from you in a way that's, that really digs deep. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple of things. Uh, one is, if you, uh, you know, if you were going to give some people some tips on becoming more aware of their own culture and their own responses to culture, what would you tell them? How can you, you're doing this all the time as part of your profession. So how do you help people to be more culturally self-aware and more culturally other aware? Well, usually when, when we work with a group that has never done this before, we go through some group exercises, some role plays that highlight to the members of the group that we all have inherent biases, whether we would like to admit that or not. And then after, after these exercises, Sizes. Typically, we give them uh, role descriptions, character descriptions, and they have to act that out. And it usually makes them super uncomfortable. And there are different role descriptions in the room. And later on, we debrief it. And we ask one group, how did you feel? Or what do you think about the other group's behavior? And then I write down on a flip chart the words that they shout out. And usually 80 to 90% of the words the people describe or think are descriptive of behaviors are not descriptions and observations. They are judgments. Right. So I make them aware of their own bias and their easiness in judging. So the first lesson is always how to suspend judgment in favor of observation. And it's a constant practice. It's nothing that you can flip the switch on. It's, 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 I've still practice it to this day. I have to tell myself, hey, wait a minute, is, am I making a, a gut reaction judgment here or am I truly observing what's going on? Um, so that, that would be first step. And then a second step is that I, I would invite them to uh, invite people to think of other people's behavior as always based on a positive intention. Nobody acts and behaves the way they, they do because they want something negative for themselves. Every behavior is based on a desired positive outcome. So when I experience a behavior that I don't like or that is unfamiliar to me or that I might even reject, while I observe, I have to tell myself, so what might be that intention behind that behavior that I'm not seeing yet? What do what does she he want? And the judgment suspension is, is hard to do. It's sometimes painful, but it might only be a split second or a couple of seconds. And while you do it, you become aware of the environment, the situation that you're in, and you your judgment may shift because of that pausing. There's a book that I, I typically recommend not only to clients but also to friends and podcast audiences. It's a, a book, a, a small thin little book by a gentleman called Don Miguel Ruiz, and it's called The Four Agreements. And the four agreements have become kind of the constitution, a part of the constitution in our family. And one of the four agreements is do not assume that you know what people are thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. Nothing that people do is about you. It's all about them. And and suspending that judgment is is a hard practice to do, but that's, that's the, the second step we teach. And one of the final parts that I would like to impart on people is being comfortable with their vulnerability. Because once you have become aware that you make mistakes when dealing with other cultures or when you realize that other people are making mistakes in dealing with you, 
it's okay to show that we're not perfect. It is okay to let others know that we are consciously incompetent. Hey, I think I stepped on your toes or I think I said something that was offensive. I'm sorry about that. Can you help me improve or can you show me what I did wrong? I don't even know what I did wrong, but it appears that there is something missing here. So having that vulnerability, having as I said earlier, I was a 17-year-old cocky male, and I was not vulnerable at all because I wanted to appear strong and perfect and well-rounded and whatnot. And it's, it's, it's this illusion of perfection that many of us have that we think we need to be perfect with the world because that's what the world expects of us. I call nonsense because none of us are perfect and will never be. Perfection is an illusion. And, and being okay, being okay with that vulnerability of not being perfect or being imperfectly perfect is, I think, the superpower in dealing with other cultures and dealing with people, period. That's great. Can you run through the four again? One is uh, do not assume. Second is always do your best. And what your best is could be different depending on your day-to-day shape that you're in. If you're sick, then your best is less than if you're in top shape. Always do your best. Be impeccable with your word, meaning do what you say you were going to do and and do not lie, basically. And the fourth is, hang on, (laughs) now I should know, right? Um, Be impeccable with your word. Do not assume. uh, Always do your best. And dang it, I can't think of it. I will. I will. It will come to you. Um, it, will come to you. We'll it, it, it will come to me in the next sentence, right? Yeah, we'll we'll put it in the show notes, or you'll suddenly think of it as soon as we're finished the interview. This is something weird about the brain that does that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, is there anything else you'd like to say before we end the interview today? Well, first of all, it was a pleasure, and um, I think we we went really long, and I hope you you. Forgive me for 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 ranting so much. A rant is boring and long. Yours was pertinent and interesting. It really wasn't a rant. Excellent. I hope there was something of value in it for for your audience. And um, if there are follow-up questions or anything that triggered an interest, feel free to reach out. Super. So what would you like to promote before we close out? If you're interested in what I do, you'll find me. I'm, I'm not promoting anything specific. I'm, I'm promoting the, the idea that you may be more cognizant, aware of your own biases and that it is not, it's not wrong to have those. I live in a country in the United States where we've been going through really severe issues in terms of not only politics and, and, and I would say culture wars um, and, and the mudslinging from all the different angles and sides is based on the insecurities that every, every side has. And I live in a very African-American neighborhood in Atlanta, and I'm one of the few white people here. And I'm learning day to day what white privilege is. And I'm also learning day to day what white fragility is, the, the inability of the majority of the white majority to acknowledge their biases and to acknowledge that marginalized groups do not have the same privilege. And and people are so quick to jump into defensive mode. And what I said earlier, this suspend your judgment, be open to the fact that none of us are perfect. And maybe you did step on somebody. So maybe you did say something that wasn't cool. Be okay with it, but be willing to learn from it. There, There's nothing wrong in making mistakes. There's only, the only thing you could do wrong is staying stuck in your mistake. That's really great. The, the only thing you can do wrong is to stay stuck in your mistake. That's a great tweetable quote. There we go. Sound bite. <laughs> Thank you so much, Christian. I hope you have a marvelous uh, end of your day and a marvelous weekend and week coming up. And um, we'll be sending you 
the show notes and the recording so you get a chance to spread that to your audience and keep on promoting your excellent podcast. So thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Christian Hoffler as much as I did. Christian is a very articulate and self-aware individual whose life experience in two countries has propelled him towards a mission of assisting others to erase those intercultural obstacles, keeping them from working together peacefully towards a common goal. This mission is something Christian gets to practice personally every day as a white man in a majority black community of Atlanta, Georgia. Christian bases his life on the values of Don Miguel Riz for assumptions. Be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally, don't make assumptions, and always do your best. Thank you in advance for sharing and rating this podcast. You can send me a message at marie at shiftworkplace.com to offer opinions and suggestions for upcoming speakers, or go to Voxer and leave me a voice message. If you leave a voice message, who knows? You may just find yourself on one of the upcoming episodes for the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast. Thanks for listening, and may cultural and leadership insights continue to inspire and guide your day.